All right, good morning. Let us begin with a word of prayer, and we will begin our study through First and Second Corinthians. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful just for the beautiful weather today. We can see your hand in creation. We know that um, there is a powerful, loving, ever-present God behind all that we can see. I pray that as we look at your revealed word this morning, that you would uh, do the same for us, that we would just be reminded that even though these words were written thousands of years ago now, uh, the same God is behind them. They still have life. They are living and breathing uh, the very words of God. And I ask that as we are perhaps confronted with them at times, that we would um, be conformed into the image of Christ, that we would strive for greater unity here at Grace as we see the example of the Corinthian church. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, today starts a new book. We just finished Romans last week, and you should have read 1 Corinthians uh, 1 to 5 in your reading plan for this week. I'll echo what John said last week. Feel free, even if you've been out of the reading plan for a little while now, to hop right back into it. Uh, we love the participation we're seeing from you guys. It is awesome to think that tomorrow morning we're all getting up and reading 1 Corinthians 6 together and answering these questions and just being immersed in the Word of God. Um, I think we'll be in First and Second Corinthians for five total weeks. Uh, so there will be some repeat chapters that you should be aware of. They should be marked pretty clearly on the sheet for you. But before we begin answering the questions this morning, I wanted to begin with just a little bit of an introduction to Corinth. I really want us to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of these people who received a letter from Paul, and maybe to answer the questions, what would it have been like to be a Christian in Corinth? What was the culture like there that made being a Christian easy, perhaps hard? I, I really want the Bible to come to life for us so that we can be thinking about the setting, the context as we're reading throughout the next couple of weeks and just know, hey, this is what these people were going through. A large part of understanding the church in Corinth comes from understanding its location. We're going to look at maps again. I know when I last taught Acts, we had maps like every day. We're bringing them back because I think it's important for us, so bear with me here. Here you see a picture of Greece. To the right is Turkey. Uh, to the left, you can't see it pictured, but Italy is just across that little body of water there. And then I've marked some key cities in Greece. Some of them may look familiar to you, uh, just by nature of Paul having written an epistle to those locations. So Thessalonica and Philippi, I assume you've heard before. Some of these destinations we encountered in our reading through Acts. So they should be familiar to you as well. You see Berea up there and Athens. Paul visited both of those places on his missionary journeys. And I've included one other city down there in the south, just as a point of reference and one that I'm sure is familiar to you. You can see Sparta down there in the peninsula of Greece, uh, pretty well renowned for its warriors. But I have a question for you that is going to be a little interactive and require you to kind of scour this map a little bit that is important in understanding about the city of Corinth. Let's pretend that you were a trader 
someone who traded goods, you were a merchant, we would say, uh, you had a couple of mules who, that pulled a carriage around and you brought goods all over Greece. Let's pretend that you were a merchant who was in the city of Thessalonica and you had to go to Sparta. I want you to map out in your mind the route that you would take to get from Thessalonica to Sparta. There's really only one if you're looking at the map. C can you identify maybe a strategic place to put a city? A strategic place that would be a natural choke point for everyone passing from the north part of Greece to the south part of Greece? Here's another question for you. Let's pretend you're still a merchant. This time the context or the scenario is a little bit different. Let's say that you're a merchant who lives in Athens and you are trying to get to the west side of Greece, maybe some of these islands over here. Can you identify a route that you would take by ship from Athens to one of those islands? Again, the answer is pretty obvious. You have to go around, but if there was a spot that maybe you could build a canal or cut across a narrow strip of land and shave that distance considerably, do you see a point that you might try to cross on land? Yeah, hopefully you've identified maybe the same spot, both for land travel and sea travel, and that spot is right on that little isthmus. That's where Corinth was. Interestingly enough, the examples that I just gave you were not hypothetical. People traveling by land would have to pass through that little tiny uh, isthmus, they call it, that little bridge of land to get to Sparta, and people traveling from Athens, rather than going the three to 400 miles around that uh, peninsula down there, would instead pull their ships out of the water and cross on that little spit of land right there that's only four miles wide. If the ships were small enough, I think they would put them on logs and roll them across, and if they were too big to be pulled out of the water, they would actually unload them at that little harbor right there, transport them the four miles across to the other side, and ships would be waiting on that side to bring them around the side. And so, like I said, this saved merchants probably three to 400 miles worth of travel just by being able to cut across that little tiny spit of land. Actually, back in Jesus's day, there were talks about building a canal right across from it. I think one of the Caesars started construction on this canal, and it wasn't even completed until the 1800s. I have a picture of the canal for you. You can just make out that little strip of water that is cutting Greece effectively in half. That exists to this day. There's a canal right there on the map where you see Corinth located. Now, because of its unique uh, placement from a trade perspective, it was a crossroads for cultures. It was a, just a, a, we would say, a melting pot of religions and cultures and people. One scholar I read compared it to um, being the modern-day equivalent of New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas combined. Now, when I mention those cities, what are some of the words that come to mind? If you were told that Corinth was like Vegas, L.A., and New York City, what comes to mind? 
Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of those things may have been present. I don't know about gambling for sure, but totally, yeah. I mean, business, it was the cross point of sea and land travel. I keep saying that. Uh, entertainment, certainly. There were uh, Olympic games or sports games that were hosted in Corinth. Yeah, it was a big hub. Any other thoughts as to like what might come to mind, Claire? Sinful city, totally. Yeah, idolatry was rampant. Immorality was rampant. In fact, during this time period, uh, you may have heard this before, but the word Corinth became synonymous with immorality. That, that's how crazy it was here. Any other thoughts? We might say large population centers. Uh, this was like the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. So, so let me ask you then. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul coming here, as he did in Acts chapter 18, to this city that is renowned for its immorality, idol worship, a secular culture, intellectual people. Jesus tells him personally that there are a lot of people in this city that are his own, but Paul has to just go and find them and preach the gospel. They get saved. There is a church that starts here. That's awesome. We celebrate, as we'll find out in 1 Corinthians 6, that Paul addresses these people and he lists uh, people who are adulterers and homosexuals and greedy, and, and he says, and you guys were saved out of this. We, we understand that this is the culture of Corinth. This was the kind of people that got saved. Very, very worldly, very secular people, but can you imagine some of the challenges of starting a church in Vegas? What do you think is going to be a temptation for these people. Any thoughts? Will? Totally. They still live in Corinth. Do you think these people that are baby Christians, very immature in their faith, are going to be tempted to go back into their old ways and old customs? I think that's a real possibility. Uh, I think that what Paul has on his hands is just a bunch of immature Christians. Who, who haven't been really taught in the faith, who've not really been left to themselves, but there's just a lot of challenges. And so when we read in the coming chapters about disunity and Paul addressing immorality and taking people to court and eating food offered to idols, the subject matter makes total sense to us. We know where they live. Paul isn't just speculating about the things that he writes to them about. These are the very problems that they are immersed in, that Paul is giving them instruction, be distinct, be holy, live lives that are not like the people in Corinth around you, totally. So, I think knowing all of this about Corinth makes it a lot easier for us to understand the topics that Paul has to address. As I was thinking about the church in Corinth, um, there seemed to be some similarities to the formation of grace from what I know of it. Uh, back in the 70s, right, there were a bunch of people who were just saved out of the world and started a church together. And it was, you know, from what I, again, what I understand, just a bunch of 20-somethings who were left to start a church. And I'm sure there were challenges that were a part of being here at Grace at the outset. And I'm sure that there were older people that had to come alongside you and and help you uh, walk with the Lord and make right decisions. We see a lot of this on display in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I think Paul gives us a really good model of how to interact with new believers, with immature believers. 
Uh, he's blunt with them at times. He's also very gracious to them at times, making sure to point out both good and bad things that they do. I'm saying all of this just so that you have a little bit fuller of a picture that as we read through this book in the coming weeks, you understand, oh, this is the culture that they were a part of. Very worldly, very secular. I hope that's encouraging uh, for you, and I hope that that sticks in your mind as we read through. All right, we'll move to the, the discussion questions now. If you have your binders, feel free to pull them out or turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul spends the first uh, nine verses kind of doing his standard greeting and introduction to the church. But in verse 10, he gets straight to business. And he's already addressing the church in Corinth and identifying a problem that had arisen in the church. What problem did you see in the text that the church of Corinth struggled with? Yeah, Lynn. A lot of quarreling. Yeah, a lot of division. Do you remember what the exact cause of that division was, Lynn? Yeah, it's okay. Hutch? Yes. Who they were following. Remember the words that sh show up a couple of times in this text? Paul says, some of you are saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. Some are like the very spiritual ones, and they say, well, I follow Christ. And Paul's saying, no way. Paul was the one who had started this church. If you remember from the book of Acts, Apollos was sent to Corinth. We know that he was a great orator. He was very gifted, eloquent, knew how to handle the scriptures. And the people are getting divided over personalities. And they're saying, well, I'm on Paul's team. I'm on Apollos' team. Paul's response to this is to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't die for you. I wasn't, you weren't baptized in my name. He's saying, listen, the church cannot be divided behind personalities. We are unified in Jesus Christ. Second question, according to John 17, 20 to 21, what does Jesus pray would be an outcome of the unity among his followers? Diane, that they would be one in Jesus Christ? Yeah, for what purpose? Demi. Okay, Shane. Yeah. Jesus says, I want you guys to be united so that the world would believe, that they would know the truth about me, that I'm sent from the Father, that my message is true. I want us to stop and think about that for a second. There's not really a verse for this question, but maybe just we can think out loud for a little bit. What do you think differentiates the unity among believers from the unity that we would see at a Red Sox game, right? We would say there's 30,000 people that are all unified, cheering for a certain team. How, how is that different, do you think, than the unity that Jesus is talking about that exists among believers? Any thoughts on that? Bonnie. Exactly. Yes, the unity among believers lasts longer than a couple of hours. Our neighbors should be able to see us every Wednesday and Sunday coming here and being unified just by matter of our cars being parked here. Any other thoughts? 
about what distinguishes Christian unity? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, I think that's a great point you made there. It's not by, you know, a letter we're wearing on our shirt, but by maybe something even deeper, by Christ dwelling inside of us. Yeah, totally. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Joy. That's a really good point. Yeah, we choose what team to cheer for, but Christ chose us and put us together in this body. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Claire. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I thought about the unity of Christ um, that compels us to interact with one another in a loving way. Right? Like, it is our unity that even though we annoy each other at times, we get under each other's skin, and there are certainly, like, parts of us that, you know, we wouldn't choose to hang out with some people here if we were out on the street, but we have Christ in common. And we can choose to love and forgive, and we intentionally go out of our way to let things just be water under the bridge, to let love cover a multitude of sins, and say, you know what, I don't care who you voted for, I don't care how much money you make, I don't care about how you treated me last week, we have Christ in common. That is supernatural, and I think that the world should be able to look at that kind of unity and say, whoa, there is something to this uh, movement, there is something to Christianity that validates who Jesus is. And so I asked you, what are some practical ways that you could promote unity within our church? Any ideas on this one? Yeah, PJ. Yeah, that was kind of a twofold love and serve people and then even rebuke people. We don't often think of that as being very unifying, but the intent of a rebuke is to bring people back. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Even just simple things, Claire. Yeah. Shane. Exactly. Bonnie, I saw your hand just for a second. Yeah, being humble. I just thought of some like very easy ones. Like maybe if you see someone sitting by themselves, go sit with them during a church service. Uh, invite people over for lunch after dinner or after the service. Uh, Titus, I saw your hand just for a second. Yeah, cross-generational barriers. Spend time with people who aren't your own age. Perfect. That's a great example. Uh, welcome people to be part of your family. As I was just reflecting on this, I thought of how you guys did this for me, how you became kind of a family to me when I moved out here by myself. A and you showed me the unity of the body of Christ in, in loving me and welcoming me and you know, having me over for dinner and all this. This is what Christians do. We're unified. And I think with this first question then comes a little bit of a thinking point for us. Are there things here at Grace that unite us more than Jesus? Do you come here and find yourself talking to people more about what you did this week than you do what God taught you from his word? Do, do you find yourself kind of clumping together with the same five people that you talk to <laughs> every week and, and that you're familiar with and that you're comfortable with? 
Or do you find yourself just really intentionally going out of your way to minister to other people, to be united with them, to say, hey, I don't even know your name. <laughs> I'm Tyler. Let me tell you about what I learned this week in the Word. Let me tell you about how I got saved. Let me tell you about, you know, this thing that God showed me. Let, let's find commonality in Jesus and in the Word. Yeah, second question from 1 Corinthians 1. As Paul describes uh, his message of the gospel, he says that the Greeks rejected it because it was foolishness to them. He says that Jews rejected it because they couldn't wrap their minds around the Messiah being crucified. And Paul says there are a select group of people that God has called to understand the gospel, even though a lot of people are rejecting it because of their intellect or other beliefs. How does the text describe the characteristics of people that God chooses or calls in verses 26 to 31? How are they described? Cuppy. <laughs> yeah. Not wise, not powerful, not of noble verse, not of noble birth. In fact, a couple verses later, they're called uh, foolish, weak, despised. This is rhetorical, but how do those words make you feel if you're a believer? I'm weak, I'm foolish. For what purpose did God choose the weak and foolish and despised according to this text? Mike. <laughs> yeah. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that whatever work God does through weak, foolish, despised people, they would never be able to say, yeah, I am pretty awesome. I am pretty strong, mighty. I am pretty smart. No, when God uses weak, foolish people, the only conclusion is to say, wow, there must be a pretty powerful God behind them to be able to accomplish those kinds of things through these weak people. And so how should these truths then impact the way that we view our own salvation and sanctification? Very practically, when we know this about ourselves, how does that impact the way we view these things? Will? Yeah, be thankful. Because it was nothing we did of ourselves. Yeah, what else? Be humble. Yes. Tell me, were you going to say the same thing? Yeah. When, when you realize that you're not of noble birth, there was nothing awesome about you that made God say, yeah, I'm going to call you and choose you. There's a spirit of humility that accompanies that. You know, there's a spirit of dependency that is required here. How prideful to think that we can do the Christian life on our own, that we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that, yeah, we've got this pretty well figured out. No way. When God uses us, weak, foolish people, the, the frame of mind that we should be in should say, whoa, I'm not awesome. God is. He is choosing to work, even in spite of me, we would say. And Paul is not uh, shy about admitting his own shortcomings, his own weaknesses. In chapter 2, he begins by saying, listen, when I came to Corinth, I spoke with fear and trembling and great weakness. He says, I did not come mightily proclaiming these things to you guys. This is pretty foreign to a Greek perspective 
of talking about stuff. They were philosophers. They were well-educated. If you remember from the book of Acts, when Paul goes to Athens, he encounters these people who literally did nothing but sit around all day and discuss things. They were the intellectuals of the day, and Paul presented the gospel in a way that was very contrary to that for the purpose of these people not believing in Jesus because Paul was a great orator because they said, yeah, you know, on paper, that makes a lot of sense. You make a good argument. I'll believe in Jesus. No, he spoke in a very simple, clear way so that these people would be converted because of the power of the Holy Spirit inside of them at work. It was intentional on Paul's part. Paul talks then in verses 6 and 7 about this contrast that exists between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. In what way is the message of the gospel greater than the wisdom of the world? How does verses 6 and 7 articulate that? Flynn. Yeah. The wisdom of the world and the rulers, 1 Corinthians says, are doomed to pass away. But Jesus says about his own words in Matthew 24, 35, that what? God's word will never pass away. Yeah, and so how might this reality provide a measure of comfort to us today? Knowing that the wisdom of the world is fleeting, and yet Jesus' own words, the Bible, they are not going to pass away. Is there, is there a comfort that that offers you? Yeah, how would you articulate what this provides? Bonnie. Totally. Yeah. God doesn't change. Any other thoughts? Yeah, PJ. Exactly. God keeps his word. I was just thinking maybe from our perspective with the advent of news that is changing all the time and people's opinions on things that are always changing, you know, even truth quotes seems to be changing in our day and age. We might turn on the news tomorrow and find out that, you know, they've made some new discovery that just totally, you know, reworks everything we knew. A and it's hard to keep up at times. The, the, the ground is always changing. You can never stand on the world's truth. But the scriptures? These things have existed long before these earthly ideas, and they will exist long after the rulers of this world are gone. The scriptures are a firm foundation upon which we can build our lives. God keeps his promises. He doesn't change. The scriptures are worth building the entirety of our lives upon. Moving on now to our second question. Paul talks about people's capacity to receive wisdom from God. And he has these two groups of people, the natural person and the spiritual person. According to verses 14 to 16, what is the natural person's response to the things of the world? How, how does a natural person respond, excuse me, to the things of the spirit? Well, they don't accept them. They, they don't understand them, we might say. And by contrast, what is a spirit-filled person able to do? 
Claire. Yeah, they can understand truth. I think the ESV, let me look at it again, verse... Um, yeah, the ESV says the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. I think that's a little confusing because if we read that just at face value, it sounds like a spiritual person can judge someone else or condemn them, but when they, you know, when someone else tries to do that to them, they're like, oh, no, you can't judge me. No, the NASB actually makes it clear that maybe the better word for this is to discern all things. A spirit-filled person can discern spiritual things, but a person who doesn't have the spirit of God cannot turn around and look at a Christian and, and say, well, you're doing this wrong. They, they just don't know. They don't have the spirit of God to help them discern even our actions. Maybe a, a very relevant illustration for us is, you know, we're going to have a missionary speak this morning, and we've decided as a church that it is worthwhile to give part of our income to missionaries, to the advancement of the gospel, to spreading the name of Jesus around the world. What do you think a person who doesn't have the spirit of God thinks about that use of our finances? Probably pretty silly, huh? You guys are just shipping money all over the place for what? But a spirit-filled person knows that there's more going on here than meets the eye, that we personally and firmly believe that it is a worthwhile investment to give of our money to the spread of the gospel around the world. And the last question here then is, whose mind do we have? You can just say it out loud. Christ. Yeah. I, I think this illustrates well what happens at conversion. There's a shift that takes place in our thinking. All of a sudden, we care about the sin in our lives. We want to repent of it. We want to start living for the Lord. We have the mind of Christ. And on the heels of teaching about a natural and a spiritual person, Paul presenting these two groups, he actually has a scathing rebuke to the Corinthian church in chapter 3. He's just talked to them that there are people who do not have the spirit, that do not understand the things of God. The spirit-filled person is able to. And he says, he actually makes an evaluation about the spiritual maturity of the church in Corinth in chapter 3. What does he say about them? How does he evaluate their own maturity level? Hutch. Yeah. He says, you guys are infants in Christ. You're people of the flesh. They have to be fed with milk and not solid food. What characteristics does Paul list to support this conclusion that the church in Corinth is not as mature as they would like to think? He, he rattles off some attributes. What characteristics does he list in this text? Mike. Okay. What they're able to digest. Certainly, maybe in regards to the teaching of God's word. Any other, Shane? Jealousy and strife. Yeah, he says that this exists among you. Perhaps a callback to chapter one when he says... Uh, you guys cannot let disunity be a part of your practice here at church. You have to be unified. Here he is in chapter 3 calling it out again, this jealousy, this strife that exists. Similarly, how does James 3, 14 to 16, describe jealousy and selfish ambition? What does James say about this? Cynthia. Yeah. When you see jealousy and selfish ambition in a church, James says, this is not wisdom that originated from above. 
This is wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. It's a pretty good litmus test for us, right? If I had to be transparent, there are certainly times that I'm jealous. There are certainly times that I feel that selfish ambition. I want things done to advance myself. I feel that in my own heart. And when we start to feel those things, we can look at James and conclude, this does not have origin from God. We would look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and conclude, if we're feeling those things, that is perhaps not evidence of a spiritually mature person. It is spiritual influence who are divided, who are jealous, who are seeking to advance themselves. It is a wise person, as James says, who is pure, peaceful, easy to be entreated, uh, full of mercy and good fruits. As the chapter progresses, Paul exposes the foolishness of following human leaders by talking about a couple of metaphors that he uses to describe the church. Remember, this was a big deal for the Corinthians. They want to follow Paul or Peter or Apollos or Christ. They're divided. And Paul makes use of a couple of metaphors in verses 5 to 15 to illustrate. This is not a good idea here. So in the first, well, let's ask, answer the first question. Uh, what two metaphors does Paul make use of in these verses? What does he compare the church to? Will? Yes, a farmer planting a field and a master builder, someone who is building uh, some sort of building. So in the first example of the field, who is it that gives the growth? God. Yeah, and in the second, who is the foundation? What is all of this built upon? Jesus Christ. So how do you think these metaphors would reorient the, the Corinthian church's thinking about following human leaders? Let's just take the first one. In the illustration of the field, Paul says, it wasn't Apollos or I that were doing anything. It was God who gave the growth. We just watered, we just planted. How do these things reorient the church's thinking about the formation of the church? Any thoughts? Yeah, Cynthia. Exactly. Yes. Paul says about himself and Apollos, listen, we're just servants. <laughs> we're just fellow laborers here. Uh, we are not hotshots who've done all this work ourselves and should be patting ourselves on the back thinking, yeah, I, I did start the church in Corinth. Yeah, nice job. No, they're just God's servants. God is the one giving the growth. In the illustration of the building, Paul says, listen, certainly I laid the foundation, but the foundation is Jesus Christ. There are going to be people who come after me and build upon it. Everyone is going to have to give account for how they serve. They're going to get rewards, not for how I ministered here in Corinth, but for how they did personally. And so to, to conclude, maybe this whole line of thinking or summarize the answer to this question, Paul is saying, don't follow human leaders. Jesus is the foundation of the church. God is the one who grows it. Don't give undue credit to people that are just instruments that God is using. Spend your own life, spend your own energy living for Jesus. In verse 21, what is Paul's summary statement regarding this issue? What does he conclude very simply and generally in 1 Corinthians? Lynn. Yeah, Paul says, let no one boast in men. The Corinthian church needed to be reminded 
that human personalities are not worth following. Do not boast in human leaders. We have to be united around Jesus Christ. And I just thought that this conclusion had a couple of practical, maybe applications for us. First of all, don't put your faith in a human leader. There are certainly people that we like to listen to on the internet, other very talented pastors, certainly. Don't put your faith in them. Don't become followers of them and their personality and their movement. Follow Jesus. Because what happens when these men fall into sin? Does it rock your faith if you're following a man and he falls? You're like, whoa. Follow Jesus. Secondly, be wary of Christian leaders who are trying to gain a following. If you see people who are trying to attract people to themselves rather than redirect to Jesus, be wary of them. They're probably guilty of what Paul is saying the Corinthian church is falling into here. In chapter 4, Paul talks about, again, how he is just a steward. He is just a servant. He does not want the Corinthian church to even think of him, the Apostle Paul, more highly than they ought to think. And he begins to elaborate on stewardship. In verses 1 to 5, what is required of stewards? Just one attribute that Paul says, this is what is required of stewards. Copy. That they be found faithful. Absolutely. Second question, who is the ultimate judge of whether or not someone is faithful? You can just say it out loud. The Lord. Paul says in this text, I don't really care what you think about whether or not I'm faithful, Corinthian church. I don't care what a human court thinks. I don't even trust my own evaluation of my faithfulness. I know that I will stand before God and he will determine whether or not I have been faithful. And so what is Paul's conclusion in verse 5? What application does he make about finding people faithful? Yeah, he says, don't judge. Don't make judgments about other people's ministry. It's not your job. You're not equipped to make that kind of evaluation of whether or not someone is faithful. How thorough is God's judgment? What does the text say about how thorough God's judgment is, though? It's so thorough, the text says, that he will bring to light things that are hidden in darkness. He will disclose even the purposes of the heart. And so lastly, how should this text motivate the way that we view both our ministry and others? If I could rephrase it, let's just think about our own ministry for a second. What metric is God looking for in our own life? Is he looking at how many tracts we've passed out in our lifetime, how many souls were converted under our, you know, influence, how many churches we started, the number of people that followed us? Is that the metric that God is using? Copy? He's looking for the motive, Hutch. Motive. He's looking for what? In one word, faithfulness. That is what God is looking for in our life. How about the way that we view others' ministry? What does this teach us about judging or not judging other people and what they're doing in ministry? Bonnie. Exactly. There's only one who does. Only God can see what's hidden in darkness. Only God can get to the heart of the matter. And so for us, 
we cannot judge what we think other people are doing. Certainly, I know I have an inclination to see people who are doing very public things but never seem to do things in private and think, well, they're just trying to do things for show to make people look at them and say, wow, good for you. You know, you're always serving very publicly. Conversely, we might look at uh, someone that we think does nothing at church and think, well, you need to get involved. And yet we don't know. We don't know to what extent these people are serving. I think we can do this with people's ministries. We can look at a pastor of a megachurch and think, wow, you're doing something right. God is blessing you. Maybe not. We can look at a pastor of a small church and say, well, you must be mediocre. The encouragement of this text is don't make judgments about other people's ministries. God determines their faithfulness. The challenge for our own life is be faithful. Um, let's see. I, I do want to make an important clarification here that this verse is not teaching that we can never confront other people in ministry. When it says not to make judgments about other people, if people are in sin, certainly we're going to confront them. If people are doing things that need confrontation, the scriptures allow for that. What this is talking about is not to make these judgments in your mind that we think might be true about how other people are doing things and prematurely judge them for what only God knows. Moving very quickly through this, Paul then addresses some pride that existed in the Corinthian church. He asks a series of rhetorical questions that I asked you to reflect on. Uh, I'll read the questions again for you. Paul says, who sees anything different in you? We might rephrase that and say, are you more special than anybody else? Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Did you earn anything in life by your own hard work? Lastly, if you did receive things, why do you boast as if you did not receive them? Why are you taking credit for things that God has given you? And so according to this text, do we have any reason to boast in our accomplishments, our abilities, our wealth, etc.? No way. Why not? Everything's from God. Everything belongs to God. It's a gift from him. Anything good that we have in this life is a gift from God. We need to remember that, understand it, live it. Chapter 5, Paul addresses an issue that is really unfortunate. There was a man who was in an adulterous relationship with his mother-in-law, the text makes it sound like. Paul is horrified that it, this exists in the church. He says even the pagans would not do such a thing. This behavior should not be you know, permitted or allowed in your church. And how serious is Paul about preserving the purity of the church here? What kind of things does he say to illustrate how serious he is? I'll just read some for you. He says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Cleanse out the old leaven. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul's not messing around here. This isn't a little slap on the wrist. Hey, don't do that anymore. He says, get him out of here. What is Paul's concern about in verse 6, about leaving this sin unaddressed? What does Paul anticipate perhaps happening here? He'll destroy the whole church. Cuppy, what language does he use? Yeah, he uses that little proverb, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Others might follow this example. If this sin is allowed to go unaddressed, other people are going to say, well, this seems permissible. Maybe I'll do something myself. Any thoughts on some of the dangers we might have to protect the church from today? Did anything come to mind? Things that maybe people are saying are permissible, but we have to be clear and say, no way. We cannot let this into the church. Any chain? Yeah, that God won't judge sin. Yeah. Hutch. Yeah. 
we have to be diligent in protecting the church from these things. God will judge sin. Absolutely. These things are sinful. These movements are totally. Again, one minute for this last question here. Paul tells the Corinthian church not to even eat with people who are immoral. But he has to clarify that a little bit, and he says, what specific group of people does Paul say not to eat or associate with? Christians. Yes, Paul says, if I meant not to eat with anyone who is immoral, that's impossible. You'd have to leave this world, because everyone's immoral. I do not want you to eat with Christians, people who claim to be followers of Jesus that are living this lifestyle. Absolutely. Again, for the purpose that we are not Um, affirming some of the things that they're doing and say, hey, everything's okay. Keep doing this. You're good. Paul's really trying to protect the purity of the church here. Uh, Before we pray, if you could just keep maybe an eye in Corinthians on the theme of unity. Paul really seems to be uh, purposeful, at least in these first five chapters, about the unity of the Corinthian church, something that I think we could model today. Let's pray. Lord, again, Thank you for this book. Thank you for how relevant it is to our own lives. We see a lot of ourselves here. Uh, We know that we live in a secular culture. We know that some of these problems that had infiltrated the Corinthian church infiltrated ours. We find ourselves being divisive at times. We find our pride getting in the way of things. We know that our culture is immoral and we don't want that to come into here. Please give us diligence in fighting uh, these threats to your body. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.